Speaking of the subject of God's Word preached, let's come to that. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy and chapter number 2. That's where we're going to be this afternoon. 2 Timothy and chapter 2. And I will be reading from verse 14 through to 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through to 19. We'll be doing our usual responsive reading, so I will invite you to read the odd-numbered verses. I will read the even-numbered verses, so I'll read 14. I invite you to read 15 with me, and we'll do so till we get to the end of our text. 2 Timothy chapter number 2 and verses 14 through 19. If you're able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it? 2 Timothy chapter 2, reading from verse 14 through to 19. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. God says to us, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God, this Word of God, will by no means pass away. Join with me as I pray, ask for the Spirit's help, and we come to the preaching of God's Word. Well, Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we open up Your Word and we think especially about the preaching of it and the right way to preach it, we would ask that You would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things out of Your law. May we come to especially appreciate the blessing of Your Word. It's work in our lives, and why we so desperately need it. Father, it's our habit to usually pray for pastors in our local area, but I want to take a moment to pray for the almost 5,000 pastors who were at the Shepherds Conference last week, many of them pastoring in small causes, in small areas, where it's so easy to feel discouraged after a week away of being refreshed and encouraged. Pray especially for those pastors, that you would strengthen them, you would encourage them in their ministries. Pray for all those who came from around the world, especially in this season where travel is so difficult. Pray that you would use those international pastors especially to spread the fame of your name around this world. Pray for those pastors here in the U.S., that as we seek to be faithful to you in interesting and at times troubling times, that we would remember that we serve an audience of one, that we serve you, and that in serving you, you have promised to strengthen, to equip, and to be with us. 
And so we pray that you would be with us even now as we open up your word here. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. Oh, kids, um, you are free to go to our kids. Hope you have a blessed time in there. What a joy it is to see our kids getting uh, instruction in God's Word at their level. What a joy. What a joy. This afternoon, I'm taking a break from our study in Genesis, and I want to preach to you from the subject, a biblical case for expository preaching. A biblical case for expository preaching. Yes, this message is somewhat inspired by our trip down to California last week, but actually I've been thinking for a year about finding the time in God's providence to bring a message where we think about this whole subject of preaching and why we do what we do week in and week out as we open up the Word of God and allow it to speak. And so this afternoon I want to present a biblical case for expository preaching from the text that we just read. Have you ever asked yourself why it is that we have sermons in church to begin with? Uh, Why is it that, at least in our tradition, the focal point of our worship services every single week is some guy standing behind a lectern and talking for 45 minutes to an hour depending on the week? Why is it that we emphasize the preaching of the Word And the fact that it is so important, why do we emphasize that fact so much that we make it almost center stage of what we do Sunday in and Sunday out? Now, some people will tell you that preaching is important, just not the kind of preaching that I want to talk to you about this evening. See, See, this evening I'm here to defend a practice that we've done pretty much from the beginning of this church goes by various names. Some call it expository preaching. Others call it biblical exposition. Some call it Bible exposition. Regardless of what you call it, that's what I'm trying to defend this afternoon. Well, if we're going to defend it, before we even get to our text, it might help us to actually define what this thing called expository preaching actually is. Here's my one-paragraph definition of expository preaching. I've put it up on the screen so that you can follow along. Expository preaching is an ethic that says that the point of the text, as intended by both the human and divine authors, becomes the point of the sermon, that the structure of the text shapes the structure of the sermon, and that the goal of the text, the exaltation of Christ, becomes the goal of the sermon. Let me read that again. Expository preaching is an ethic that says that the point of the text, as intended by both the human and divine authors, becomes the point of the sermon, so that the structure of the text shapes the structure of the sermon, and that the goal of the text, the exaltation of Christ, becomes the goal of the sermon. If you don't remember anything else from what I just said, remember that one word, an ethic. Expository preaching can and will look different based on the preacher's personality, his knowledge, his experience. So no two preachers sound alike. If you get upset because, oh, so-and-so doesn't sound like so-and-so, you've missed the point of preaching. 
It was the, I believe, 19th century author Phillips Brooks who said that preaching is truth delivered through personality. So different preachers will sound very different. They will approach texts differently in the way that they present them, but the ethic remains the same. Point of the text, point of the sermon. Structure of the text, structure of the sermon. Goal of the text, goal of the sermon. What unites expository preachers around the world is a, not so much a method as much as a set of beliefs that orbit around our view of God's Word. Now, you would think that all Christians would agree with that. We should have no problem with that idea. Now, of course, we want to preach messages that are biblical. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense that the point of the text should be the point of a sermon. But you'd be surprised just how many people don't agree with that statement. To kind of make that point, I want to quote from two of America's most influential pastors. Two of them. Anyone familiar with the name Craig Groeschel? If you aren't, you probably are because you've got his Bible app on your phones. You know the Bible app that's so popular? His church produces that, Life, LifeChurch.tv. This is what he said in a sermon from just last year, October of 2021 about expository preaching. You can find the clip on YouTube. Here's what he said, quote, we can become without enough theological background, but we can become critics of churches everywhere. We know which ones are good and which ones are bad, and because we're right, we tell everyone that church is too shallow or that church is too boring, or my church is right. We don't teach that feel-good, soft message, but we preach the unadulterated, exegetical word of God, the ex exegetical verse by verse, just like Jesus didn't do. And he goes on to joke and say, oh, I didn't mean to say that out loud. How about the name Andy Stanley? Anyone familiar with him? Mr. Unhitch from the Old Testament. 2009 with Ed Stetzer, he did an interview about his new book, Communicating for a Change. I've read it. You don't need to. It's garbage. But having read the book, he says this, quote, or the interview, here's what he said in an interview about that book. Quote, guys that preach verse by verse through book verse by verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. Let me finish reading and then I'll make my comments. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Well, first of all, anybody who's actually preached an expository message or had to prepare one knows that to say that is easy is laughable. I'm sorry, I could roll out of bed and do what Andy Stanley does. I can't roll out of bed and do what I do week in and week out. Also, he says that that's not how you grow people. As I'm fond of saying, make it make sense to me. You don't grow people by teaching the word of God as God gave it. He says, no one in Scripture modeled that. I would heartily disagree with that statement. He says, there's not one example of that. Actually, we'll read it next week when we look at Peter's sermon from the book of Acts. In that sermon, yes, he's not working through one text. He works through about three or four. But he actually takes each text. He looks at the points of that text, and the point of that text becomes the point, a point in his sermon. But between those two men, Andy Stanley and Craig Groeschel, they have sway over thousands of churches in this country. The Life Church Network opens churches like Walmart open stores. 
And Andy Stanley's North Point Network has churches all over this country, and he has even more influence through his pastoral training network. I caught those two things, and I asked one simple question. Are those men right? Are they telling us the truth when they say that people who do expositional preaching aren't doing what Jesus did, or we do it because we're lazy and we can't be creative? Is expositional or expository preaching what I do and what loads of pastors around the world do because we lack both the creativity and the intelligence to preach other kinds of sermons? Is expository preaching kind of like what people say about teachers in general? And I come from, a, my mom's a teacher, so I have to be careful with this. But you've heard the saying, right? Those who can do and those who can't teach. Is that what people do with expository preaching? Because we can't be creative like everyone else. So we just go verse by verse because we're just not that smart. Well, no. I mean, I'll be honest. I, pers- I don't believe in exposition because I'm not creative. I actually worked in marketing as a copywriter. At the risk of sounding somewhat arrogant, if I got bored, I could sell ice to Eskimos if I wanted to. Like, I don't lack creativity. And it's not because I lack brains either. I'm a nerd. I like to study. <laughs> it's not because I lack creativity or intelligence. No, what I and millions of expository preachers down through the ages have done, what we do is an outflow of a conviction. I believe in expository preaching because I believe the Bible demands expository preaching. You see, it's possible to say you believe in the Word of God, and yet we step up to the pulpit or the desk or whatever we use and do something completely opposite. But here's my radical proposal this afternoon. I'm going to be somewhat punchy this afternoon. And I don't mean to be offensive in what I say, but I do want to be honest. I'm going to say that you cannot say you believe that this book, the Bible, is the Word of God and not preach it. Again, make it make sense to me. You can't. Either you preach what the Word says, only what the Word says, exactly how the Word says it, or you don't. That might be a radical and bold proposition this afternoon, but I invite you for a few moments, I hope this won't be a long sermon, but allow me for a few moments to make that case from the text that we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, since we're jumping into 2 Timothy, we're kind of parachuting into it, it might be good for us for a moment to paint a picture of the context of this letter. 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song. Not long after Timothy, Paul's emissary, his protege, his son in the faith, reads these words, Paul will be dead. Tradition says that he was beheaded for the cause of Christ in Rome. Well, Paul's about to die. And generally speaking, when people know they're about to die, whatever they're about to say last tends to be most important. You don't waste time when you're about to die on your shopping list. As you read both First and Second Timothy, there's a theme that runs through both of them. You can trace it like, uh, like the melody in a song that just keeps going and going and going. The theme that runs through both those letters, including this final one, is the reality that there are people out there who are running around claiming to speak for God and using his book to say things that he has never even remotely said. For a moment, this is going to feel like a Bible study at points because I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you. 
If you're the note-taking type, I encourage you to write some of these references down. For a moment, I want you to trace with me through First and Second Timothy this theme that there are these people out there who claim to speak for God and yet don't. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Some have departed from these. Sound teaching and the aim of our charge being love that comes from pure instruction, 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. 1 Timothy 1.20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who know and believe the truth. Let me skip over into 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 16 and 17 that we just read. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. 2 Timothy 3, 8 and 9, just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, so their foolishness will be clear, for their foolishness will be clear to all, just as the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. Finally, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come where people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn aside from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul makes this point both in 1 Timothy, and I left some references out because there are so many of them. Paul makes this point to Timothy because For Timothy, as Paul's leaving, listen, this is the state of affairs. This is how things have been from the beginning of the church until now. And this is how they'll be after you and I have both passed from the scene. As Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, Timothy is called to be cut from a totally different cloth. Timothy wasn't to be swayed by the false and the fake and the fraudulent. Paul's answer is to call on commitment to healthy teaching from Timothy, a commitment that Timothy would then pass on to those under his tutelage. Some more verses. So 1 Timothy 1.5, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he must be able to teach. That's the one competency in that whole list, by the way. Everything else is character. The one thing he needs to be good at, able to teach. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. 1 Timothy 4, 16, 
pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God, the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. That's the background to this letter that we're reading. There are Two charges that Timothy has to hold in tension. He needs to reject certain false teachers and the things that they say. And he needs to hold on to the truth as he had received it and pass it on to the next generation. All of that is the background that brings us to our text for today's message. Here's my big idea. I forgot to put this on screen, but here's my big idea for today. It's very simple. I'm going to argue that expository preaching is how we serve Jesus by being faithful in our handling of God's Word and avoiding the misuse of God's Word. Let me say that again. Expository preaching is how we serve Jesus by being faithful in our handling of God's Word and avoiding the misuse of God's Word. For the rest of our time this afternoon, I want to consider two realities about God's Word. I told you, this is going to be a biblical case. I want to consider two realities about the Word of God, which should lead us, if we hear them correctly, they should lead us to the practice of biblical exposition. So, two realities. First of all, we practice biblical exposition because the Word demands being handled faithfully. The Word demands being handled faithfully, verses 14 and 15. Our text begins with one of Paul's favorite features. He loves these, these positive and negative contrasts. You read his letters, they're all over the place. The negative is given to us in verse 14, so look at verse 14 with me. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. That these things he's talking about is what he's just said in verses 8 to 13, the call to suffering that is grounded in the gospel message. This was going to be a major aspect of Timothy's ministry, and in fact, throughout this letter, the theme of suffering is writ large all the way through it. But with that ministry comes a warning. Here's the warning that's implicit in, verses 14, in verse 14. Excuse me. The warning is that there is a way to use the Word of God to use this Bible, that is unhealthy. What is it that Paul says? Look again at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Well, the question becomes, well, what words is he talking about here? Well, in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 1, he tells us that people were arguing about myths and genealogies. They were taking the stories and genealogies of the Old Testament and they were twisting and contorting them to come up with a message that had nothing to do with what God had said in His Word. 
They were talking about stuff that was found in the law of Moses. That's in the Bible. So they're using the Bible, and yet they're teaching things that Paul says, listen, you need to tell them not to fight about these things. How could it be that they're using the Bible, and yet their use of the Bible leads Paul to say, listen, you need to charge them to watch how they use the Word? Well, for that to make sense, I need to correct an assumption for a moment that I'm sure none of you in this room hold, but I I hear from Christians all the time. You see, just because somebody has a Bible, or they're able to at least quote some Bible verses, that doesn't actually mean they're preaching the Bible. Just because somebody takes this book and they start their sermon with a verse or two and then proceed to talk for a while, that doesn't mean that what they're saying comes from this. As our friend Pastor John Benzinger over at Redeemer Gilbert says, there's a difference between using the Bible to preach your message and the Bible using you to teach its message. Do you catch that difference? There's a difference between I use this Bible to get to a point that I want to make And I'm going to allow, as the Spirit of God uses me in the preaching moment, I'm going to allow the Bible to use me to teach its message. I'd put it to you that there are people in this city, in this state, in this Pacific Northwest region, in this nation, who are content to find a point and then find a text that backs up that point. But here's the problem with that. Who are you starting with? Are you starting with God and what He has said, or are you starting with you? As we said in Paul and Timothy's case, it was people who were latching on to myths and genealogies, stuff that was indeed in the Scriptures. But then they were making all kinds of points that had nothing to do with the Spirit-intended meaning of those words. And Paul says that the result of that is that they were neither useful for ministry or growing in their walk in Christ. Now you may think, okay, Kofi, okay, all well and good. I don't really have a predilection to arguing about Old Testament laws. I don't think this applies to me. Now, before you think, okay, well, this doesn't talk to me, true, you might not have a proneness to arguing about laws from the Old Testament. But can I put it to you that that's not the only way the Bible can be used wrongly? Let's cross the bridge from the first century, as it were, to the 21st century for a moment, shall we? What if I stepped into this pulpit and started saying, you know what, I need to figure out what people's felt needs are. And I'll start with that. And then find where Scripture talks to their felt needs. You see how subtle that is? Of course we want preaching, we'll talk about this more in a moment. Of course we want preaching to be relevant and to speak to people where they are. But do you see how I've started with what people need rather than what God has said in His Word? What if I step up here and said, you know what? There are social issues we need to address as the church, and we're not doing a good job of addressing it. What if I decided, hey, so-and-so TV show is really popular right now. What if I was to use that as my hook to get people to listen to what I have to say? In all three of those instances, what have you done? You started with you or with people, and God's Word becomes an afterthought with people setting the agenda. 
Might I suggest that one way that preachers can avoid the misuse of the Bible is to work hard at ensuring that what we preach is indeed in line with the book as it is. Because there is such a thing as an unhealthy use of God's Word. But not only is there an unhealthy use of God's Word, there is a healthy use of it. Look at verse 15 with me. Here's the positive command. Timothy, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Sure, the wrong use of the Scriptures is using it to make points it's never made, but the right use of the Scriptures is a beautiful thing. Paul charges Timothy to work hard at presenting himself as an approved one, as one who is, this word approved was used for pots in the ancient world. You would have these people who were somewhat unscrupulous, and so they would get bits of broken pottery. They would put them together with wax, paint them, and then it looked like a new pot. They put these pots in the market. What somebody would do to test the veracity of whether this pot or vase was indeed what it said it was, they would take the pot and they would put it up in the sunlight. Well, what happens when you put wax in the sunlight? It melts. And if it melts, what happens? Well, your pot comes apart. Fake. But if a pot was real, it was called the word that's translated approved here. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, be diligent to present yourself to your people. Tradition tells us he's in Ephesus. So work hard so the people in Ephesus think of you as one who's approved. No, did you catch it in our text? He says, be diligent to present yourself to God, to, excuse me, to God as one approved. Yes, we serve the people of God, those of us who stand before God's people and speak his word. Yes, we serve the people of God. You know, there are no big I's and small U's. There's no sense of, yo, I'm the really important person and you are all my adoring fans. Like, no, that's, that's not what we do when we come to the moment of preaching. But while we serve God's people, we don't work for God's people. We ultimately work for an audience of one. We work for the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he's the one who died for the flock, who gave his life after a perfect life, went to the cross and shed his blood. He's the one who died for the flock. He's the one who gives assignments for the building of the body of Christ. As Paul says later on in this letter, chapter 4 and verse 1, he is the one that we will stand before on that final day. Timothy could not afford to be swayed by the problems of those who had chosen to mishandle God's Word. He needed to work and work hard so that he could be free from the shame of standing before God and basically being accused of what the people in verse 14 were guilty of. What was Timothy to do? What was to be his mission should he choose to accept it? He was to be, the text says, Working hard, my translation says, at correctly teaching the word of truth. Now, I think my translation, the CSV, does an okay job of kind of getting to the point of what that phrase means. But the original language is actually a little more subtle, and I appreciate the subtlety here. The Legacy Standard Bible translation handles it pretty well. It says in 2 Timothy 2.15, accurately handling the word of truth. In English, it's a phrase. But in the original language, it's just one word. 
The one word carries this idea of cutting a straight path with the truth. It's a little unclear what the context of the word is. It can be used in gardening and uh, horticulture. It can be used in building. It has a lot of applications. But the general point is clear enough. The preacher, like Timothy, is called to avoid deviating and swerving in his handling of the truth as he seeks God's approval. Okay, Kofi, this is great. What does this have to do with expository preaching? We're preaching chapter by chapter, book by book through books of the Bible. What does that have to do with anything? Actually, it has everything to do with this. You see, can I put it to you that it is precisely because the preacher is tasked with handling God's Word with accuracy, it's precisely because of that that the preacher should work hard at being careful with God's Word, preaching it exactly as God gave it. No alterations, no adulterations, no apologies. If I can say it bluntly, Redeemer Bible Fellowship, as long as I'm here, and I have no plans to go anywhere, as long as I'm here, will always be committed to a staple diet of working through books of the Bible, allowing the Bible to set the agenda. Of course, we do top doctrinal series from time to time. Some of you came when we started doing our series on the Holy Spirit. So we're not afraid to do doctrinal series and to deal with topics from the Bible. But even those topics are shaped not by my ingenuity or the cleverness of myself or anybody else who stands behind this sacred desk. No, the Bible sets the agenda. And the fact that the Bible sets the agenda, that alone calls for expository preaching. One of the resources I recommended this week is the Reformation Trust book, Feed My Sheep, a passionate plea for preaching. Dr. Derek Thomas contributed a chapter to that book. And in that chapter, he says this, quote, while it is sometimes, of, while it is of course, excuse me, possible and sometimes desirable to preach expository sermons textually in Romans this week, <coughs> excuse me, in the Psalms the next, and in Haggai the following week, there is something about the very discipline of exposition that makes it impossible to pick up the threads of an argument, where's my tea? Here we are. That makes it impossible to pick up the threads of an argument that begins in one chapter and runs on for several more. Few passages are complete in themselves, requiring little, if any, reference to the preceding verses or what follows. Individual psalms are taken as whole psalms, for example, though if not though not if only one or two verses of a particular psalm constitute the text. It is very difficult to read Paul without following a lengthy argument that unfolds over lengthy passages requiring a series of sermons to unpack. The very nature of the Bible (coughs) calls for us to handle it in this sort of way. Dr. Thomas goes on and gives six reasons why our view of the Bible should lead us to expository preaching. I don't have time for all six. I'll give you just three of them, the first three. He says, number one, that expository preaching introduces the congregation to the whole Bible. If I, in our study in Genesis, got up one day and said, I'm going to skip a whole chapter, you would all notice very quickly. If I decided, nah, I don't feel like teaching that chapter, I'm going to go ahead and just skip that. I would hope that some of you would come up to me and say, dude, what's the business? Like, did you decide to just, did you get lazy this week? Like, what's going on? 
Do we need to talk? This is an intervention. What's happening? <laughs> I would hope that would be the case. Why? Because you should be used to, hold on, he covers everything. That's not to say there aren't parts of the Bible that are unnerving or difficult. A number of you were here when we did Galatians towards the end of last year. Anyone remember just how awkward I felt at the beginning of the sermon on Galatians 6, 6 through 10? The one on money. I really didn't want to preach that text. No one wants, no preacher wants to talk about money. That's a very touchy subject. It was awkward, but I couldn't say I was going to skip it because we've been working our way through Galatians verse by verse. I wasn't really going to get away with skipping that one. I can't remember who it was during one of our Ask Kofi Anything sessions, but somebody asked me if I planned on doing the whole Bible in my time at Redeemer. And my answer now is the same as the answer I gave them then. I'm going to give it a good try. (laughs) More importantly, I put it to you that a well-thought-out approach to exposition, an approach that takes what Paul says here in verse 15 and is diligent in presenting itself approved to God as one who is unashamed, that correctly teaches the word of truth, Lord willing, and the failings of the preacher notwithstanding, it should make us at least familiar with the vast sweep of the Bible as time goes on. Secondly, kind of related to this point, Dr. Thomas says that expository preaching ensures that infrequently traveled areas of the Bible are covered. If we preach that all the Bible is inspired, then doesn't it make sense that we should preach all of the Bible? I mean, if the whole thing came from God, surely God wants us to hear all of it. In in the example of our own church, some of you who've been here for a minute will know that I have preached through three lesser-known books of the Bible in my time here at Redeemer. We did a series on Jude, we did a series on Habakkuk, and we did a series on Haggai. Why? Because they're in the Bible, and God wants you to know those books, so we preach them. Third, expository preaching prevents preachers from unwittingly shaping the way their hearers read the Bible. I think sometimes we forget that in preaching, and I forget this at times, and I have to remind myself of this, that there is a modeling that takes place from the pulpit to the pew. If the preacher treats the Bible like a self-help guide, what one author calls the Xanax approach to the Bible, I've got problems, the Bible has answers, so I'm going to look for a verse that deals with my problem, pop two of these, and hey, I'm fine now. If, the preach, if a preacher treats the Bible like a self-help guide, you know, it's designed to deal with life's problems, as one preacher told me, I try to give people something to do on Sunday morning. Well, if that's how you treat the Bible, guess what happens? The people who listen to that over time will start to treat the Bible like a self-help guide designed to deal with life's problems and to give them something to do on Sunday morning, or Monday morning, excuse me. If the preacher is in the habit of skipping difficult parts of the Bible, guess what? You're teaching the people who listen to you that they should skip difficult parts of the Bible. But if, like Timothy, the preacher devotes himself to correctly handling and thus correctly teaching the entire Word of God. Over time, those who sit under that ministry will come to appreciate their need for the entire Word of God. I think Sinclair Ferguson was quoting somebody else when he said it takes a whole Bible to preach the whole Christ to make a whole Christian. And it's work. 
that phrase there in verse 15, be diligent, is one word. It literally means agonize. Put some sweat into it. It's not easy. It's hard work. But it's the kind of work that the nature of Scripture itself demands. Because after all, if it is indeed the word of truth, and if we are indeed called to handle it correctly so that we can teach it correctly, doesn't that logically mean that we need an approach to preaching that takes every inspired word as worth preaching? I'd love to say more about that, but I need to hasten on. We practice expository preaching because the Bible itself demands being handled carefully. But secondly, we practice expository preaching because the Word produces the right results in God's people. The Word produces the right results in God's people, verses 16 through 19. Coming back to our text, Paul reminds Timothy of the effects of misusing God's Word, verse 16. Avoid irreverent and empty speech. It's easy to focus on irreverent and empty speech as though it's disconnected from the Bible. But remember how this passage started? People were using words from Scripture and twisting them and contorting them to say something that Scripture never said. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at verse 16, it kind of parallels verse 14. So Paul says there that they are to avoid fighting about words, and he says this is useless and leads to ruin. The two words that are translated irreverent and empty here, they're parallels. He says that actually misusing God's word is useless. It renders people useless. And it leads to ruin. It's irreverent, and it's empty. Oftentimes, people like Groeschel and Stanley that I quoted will reject Bible exposition because they say it fails to connect with people's lives. In fact, one critic, as I was putting this message together, a critic I read all the way from Africa said this, quote, I think the pulpit is a place for proclaiming God's prophetic message to his people gathered at a particular time and in a particular context. On Sunday morning, a pastor puts on his prophetic suit and proclaims whatever topical message he has been led to speak to the congregation. This message will, of course, flow from the pastor's private prayer and study time and often with strong awareness of what is happening in the society within which his congregation lives. Instead of insisting on being explicitly expository, often renders our preaching wooden and mechanical, insensitive to the pulse of the culture and the immediate pain points of our hearers, all in the name of being biblical, end quote. Might I suggest that he's getting the cart way ahead of the horse here? Preaching should, of course, address the needs of the congregation. But can I put it to you that God knows what our needs actually are better than we think we know what our needs are? Could it be, by some stretch of the imagination, that the God who created all things has just an inkling of what you need better than you know what you need? Preaching might address the needs of the audience, but preaching isn't directly shaped by the needs and concerns of the congregation. 
It's shaped by what God has said, knowing that whatever God has said is exactly what his people need to hear. And if care isn't taken, what may on the surface sound like having the pulse of the culture and dealing with the immediate pain points of the hearer will end up actually being irreverent and empty speech. Don't believe me? Let's just use a case study. One of the people I mentioned, Andy Stanley. If it sounds like I'm going to beat up on Andy Stanley, it's because I'm going to slightly beat up on Andy Stanley. <laughs> just last week, he tweeted and it went viral that Christianity does not rest on the reliability of, in fact, as he put it, it does not rest on the reliability of 66 books, but one event, the resurrection. Because, of course, we would know about the resurrection without the Bible. Again, make it make sense to me, and you can't. This is the same man who back in, I believe it was 2017 or 2018, got into serious trouble because it came out that he was knowingly admitting people who were homosexual and were living together into the membership of his church, and he came out and justified it. This is the same man who said that at the height of the COVID pandemic, he would rather close his church than keep it open because he, get this, didn't want to lose credibility with a watching world because they're more important than the people who come to North Point Church. In my notes I wrote, I don't say that to shame him, but I kind of do. Because you see, when you start chasing relevance, can I put it to you that you might get results, but you won't get the kind of results that God is pleased with. In fact, Paul says, did you catch it? Verse, end of verse 16, he, he's to avoid irreverence and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness. When preaching and handling of God's word is not set by God's word, but set by personal agenda and by personal needs, what ends up happening is that that word doesn't produce godliness like God's word is designed to do. It produces godlessness. And this is the kind of godlessness that doesn't stay isolated. Did you catch the word picture there in verse 17? Look at it with me. Verse 17. He says, those who engage in it will, verse 16, produce even more ungodliness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. You know what we do to a part of the body that's far too infected by gangrene? We, you cut it off. It's no longer useful. Paul makes the point that unwholesome teaching spreads like gangrene. I get people ask me this all the time because some of you know I'm, I'm on social media. I'm pretty active on there. Why is it that certain people blow up on social media? And when you sit and you listen to what they have to say, none of it is even remotely biblical. And then people who are preaching the truth are constantly being attacked. And I'm saying, doesn't really surprise me. Paul says that false teaching spreads like gangrene. I've never, thankfully, had to deal with gangrene. But I've had friends in the military who were medics and they talk about this. And one of the points they make is that gangrene spreads quick. It spreads quick and it spreads fast. 
It doesn't surprise me that certain false teachers get all kinds of play and they just manage to run wild and everyone goes listening to them. That was the problem in Paul's day. Look at verse 17 and 18. Paul gives us a couple of examples of people who had given themselves to teaching that was less than healthy. End of verse 17, after he just talks about teaching spreading like gangrene, he gives us two examples. He says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. We aren't told the reasons why they landed at this teaching because it's really not important. What Paul wants you to see is the effect of this. This gangrenous teaching had infected them. They in turn taught it to others. And what did this diseased teaching do? It tanked the faith of those who heard it. I'm going to say something which I know is going to sound crazy. And feel free to come up to me afterwards and I'll explain why I say it. I read the studies that say that as a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns and what have you, church attendance is down and that some people have left churches never to return. I forget the statistic, I read something in the 25 to 30% range of people who went to church prior to the pandemic now choose to sit at home. At the risk of sounding somewhat controversial, I'm not saying this is the case in every church, but could it be that some of these people who were attending places of worship that call themselves churches were actually sitting in places where they weren't receiving healthy teaching, sound teaching from the Word of God, and then something like what happened in 2020 happened, where we all had to sit at home happened, and the lack of health that was already latent now became obvious? It doesn't surprise me that, as I've heard people say directly, this whole pandemic taught me that I don't need to go to a building to worship God. Well, actually, if you read the Bible, the Bible tells you, Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25, that we're to provoke one another to love and good works. So how do you do that? Oh, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some. That's a whole other sermon for another time, why missing church is actually bad for your spiritual health. But be that as it may, Isn't it funny that on the heels of one of the most difficult times, those people stopped going to church? But here's an interesting thing. I read some statistics that said the churches that were conservative and Bible teaching grew in this period. Why? Because those who were desiring the ministry of God's word wanted to find a place that did it. I was at Grace Community Church this week. That church is already big. But it was amazing to me to meet people who were either volunteering or attending the conference. And I saying, yeah, I found this church during the lockdown because they were open and nowhere else was. And this is not a statement about whether it was right to close or not. That's a matter of conscience. People went different ways with it. I respect that. But it is a statement about the ministry of God's word. But here's, here's the thing. It's easy for me. To, I know right now I've sounded like doom and gloom and everything is bad. I know. I apologize. But can I give you some good news as we conclude? Look at verse 19 with me. 
Despite the fact that there are those who, by their example, demonstrate that they have given themselves to teaching that spreads like gangrene and is unhealthy, verse 19 is a glimmer of hope. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. That being a quotation from Numbers chapter 16 and verse 5. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. As far as we can tell, this was a statement that was often said in the early church. And Paul quotes it because it was one that Timothy would be familiar with. So essentially what you have is God's word to his people under the old covenant and his word in the new making exactly the same point. Here's the point that while unwholesome teaching produces unwholesome results in the lives of those who hear it, God's truth produces a foundation of both assurance and holiness in God's people. It is as the people of God are consistently exposed to the truth of God that they are grounded in what God has done for them and who they are in Christ. Could it be that so many people struggle in their Christian walk because the very truth of God that they need to live out their new life in Christ is withheld from them? I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Conrad Mbewe, pastor of Kabwata Baptist Church in Zambia in 2013. I'll never forget the visual image as he took his Bible. And he said, how can there be spiritual life when this book is closed and he took his Bible and he slammed it shut? You can tell it was an old Bible because dust flew from the thing. But he said, how can there be spiritual life when this book is closed? How is it that people who need to hear the word of God don't hear it, and then they wonder why it is they are struggling in the Christian life? Could it be that what we do on Sunday in this moment while not the only means of sanctification, nevertheless, it's a vital part of it. Our fathers in the face used to think so. Listen to this. It's from the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is what they said. Quote, the Spirit of God makes the reading of the Word, but especially the preaching of it, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling, enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace, of establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith to their salvation. Could it be that verse 19 is a reminder that for those who treasure the word of God, that for those who indeed reject that which is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen to it, who reject the spiritual gangrene, that for those people, the Word of God is effectual, not just in their salvation, but in their assurance, that they grow in Christ-likeness as they hear the voice of the shepherd through His Word. I've got to close, but as I do in a nutshell, that's why I believe in Bible exposition. I believe in Bible exposition for thousands of reasons, actually. But from this text, 
because the word demands being handled faithfully. And the word produces the right results in God's people. If God's word is capable of doing that, I'll leave you with this question as I close. Why would we preach anything else? Why would I give myself to anything else? The word demands it. And the results, quite frankly, are just better than anything else I could come up with. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that as we open up the scriptures and we hear you speak to us week in and week out, something amazing is happening. That the Spirit of God is taking the word of God and he's pressing it into the hearts and lives of the people of God. Father, I pray that as we think about your word, as we hear it read, as we hear it preached, that this would not just become for us as the Old Testament passage says, like one who sings songs, like just something nice that we hear and we go about our business. But that as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, we would receive the word of God as it truly is, not the word of men, but as God's word, which works in power in those who believe. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that this word is blessed to the hearing and the growth of your people. I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.